Section 61 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2, by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. On Tuesday, March the 19th, which was fixed for our proposed jaunt, we met in the morning at the Somerset Coffee House in the Strand, where we were taken up by the Oxford coach. He was accompanied by Mr. Gwynne, the architect. Footnote. Baretti, in a manuscript note in Piozzi Letters, describes Gwynne as the Welsh architect that built the bridge at Oxford. He built Magdalen Bridge. End footnote. And a gentleman of Merton College, whom we did not know, had the fourth seat. We soon got into conversation, for it was very remarkable of Johnson that the presence of a stranger had no restraint upon his talk. I observed that Garrick, who was about to quit the stage, would soon have an easier life. Johnson. I doubt that, sir. Boswell. Why, sir, he will be Atlas with the burthen off his back. Johnson. But I know not, sir, if he will be so steady without his load. However, he should never play any more, but be entirely the gentleman and not partly the player. He should no longer subject himself to be hissed by a mob, or to be insolently treated by performers whom he used to rule with a high hand, and who would gladly retaliate. Boswell. I think he should play once a year for the benefit of decayed actors, as it has been said he means to do. Johnson. Alas, sir, he will soon be a decayed actor himself. Johnson expressed his disapprobation of ornamental architecture, such as magnificent columns supporting a portico, or expensive pilasters supporting merely their own capitals, because it consumes labour disproportionate to its utility. For the same reason he satirised statuary, Painting, said he, consumes labour not disproportionate to its effect, but a fellow will hack half a year at a block of marble to make something in stone that hardly resembles a man. The value of statuary is owing to its difficulty. You would not value the finest head cut upon a carrot. Footnote. Whence, asks Goldsmith, has preceded the vain magnificence of expensive architecture in our colleges. Is it that men study to more advantage in a palace than in a cell? One single performance of taste or genius confers more real honour on its parent university than all the labours of the chisel. Present state of polite learning. Newton used to say of his friend the Earl of Pembroke, that he was a lover of stone dolls. Brewster's Newton, end of footnote. Here he seemed to me to be strangely deficient in taste. For surely statuary is a noble art of imitation, and preserves a wonderful expression of the varieties of the human frame, and although it must be allowed that the circumstances of difficulty enhance the value of a marble head, we should consider that if it requires a long time in the performance, 
it has a proportionate value in durability. Gwynne was a fine, lively, rattling fellow. Dr. Johnson kept him in subjection, but with a kindly authority. The spirit of the artist, however, rose against what he thought a gothic attack, and he made a brisk defence. What, sir? Would you allow no value to beauty in architecture or in statuary? Why should we allow it, then, in writing? Why do you take the trouble to give us so many fine allusions and bright images and elegant phrases? You might convey all your instruction without these ornaments. Johnson smiled with complacency, but said, Why, sir, all these ornaments are useful because they obtain an easier reception for truth. But a building is not at all more convenient for being decorated with superfluous carved work. Wynne at last was lucky enough to make one reply to Dr. Johnson, which he allowed to be excellent. Johnson censured him for taking down a church which might have stood many years, and building a new one at a different place, for no other reason but that there might be a direct road to a new bridge. And his expression was, You are taking a church out of the way, that the people may go in a straight line to the bridge. No, sir, said Wynne, I am putting the church in the way, that the people may not go out of the way. Johnson, with a hearty, loud laugh of approbation, speak no more, rest your colloquial fame upon this. Upon our arrival at Oxford, Dr. Johnson and I went directly to University College, but were disappointed on finding that one of the fellows, his friend Mr. Scott, footnote, afterwards Lord Stoll, see the beginning of Boswell's Hebrides, end of footnote, who accompanied him from Newcastle to Edinburgh, was gone to the country. We put up at the Angel Inn, and passed the evening by ourselves in easy and familiar conversation. Talking of constitutional melancholy, he observed, A man so afflicted, sir, must divert distressing thoughts, and not combat with them. Boswell, may he not think them down, sir? Johnson, no, sir. To attempt to think them down is madness. He should have a lamp constantly burning in his bedchamber during the night, and if wakefully disturbed, take a book, and read, and compose himself to rest. To have the management of the mind is a great art, and it may be attained in a considerable degree by experience and habitual exercise. Boswell should not he provide amusements for himself? Would it not, for instance, be right for him to take a course of chemistry? Johnson. Let him take a course of chemistry, or a course of rope dancing, or a course of anything to which he is inclined at the time. Let him contrive to have as many retreats for his mind as he can, as many things to which it can fly from itself. Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy is a valuable work. It is perhaps overloaded with quotation, 
but there is great spirit and great power in what Burton says when he writes from his own mind. Next morning we visited Dr. Wetherell, Master of University College, with whom Dr. Johnson conferred on the most advantageous mode of disposing of the books printed at the Clarendon Press, on which subject his letter has been inserted in a former page. I often had occasion to remark, Johnson loved business, loved to have his wisdom actually operate on real life. Dr. Wetherill and I talked of him without reserve in his own presence. Wetherill, I would have given him a hundred guineas if he would have written a preface to his political tracts by way of a discourse on the British Constitution. Basil, Dr. Johnson, though in his writings and upon all occasions a great friend to the Constitution, both in church and state, has never written expressly in support of either. There is really a claim upon him for both. I am sure he could give a volume of no great bulk upon each which would comprise all the substance, and with his spirit would effectually maintain them. He should erect a fort on the confines of each. I could perceive that he was displeased with this dialogue. He burst out, why should I always be writing? I hoped he was conscious that the debt was just and meant to discharge it, though he disliked being dunned. We then went to Pembroke College and waited on his old friend Dr. Adams, the master of it, whom I found to be a most polite, pleasing, communicative man. Before his advancement to the headship of his college, I had intended to go and visit him at Shrewsbury, where he was rector of St. Chad's, in order to get from him what particulars he could recollect of Johnson's academical life. He now obligingly gave me part of that authentic information, which, with what I afterwards owed to his kindness, will be found incorporated in its proper place in this work. Dr. Adams had distinguished himself by an able answer to David Hume's essay on miracles. He told me he had once dined in company with Hume in London. Footnote. Hume told Cadell, the bookseller, that he had a great desire to be introduced to as many of the persons who had written against him as could be collected. Accordingly, Dr. Douglas, Dr. Adams, etc., were invited by Cadell to dine at his house in order to meet Hume. They came, and Dr. Price, who was of the party, assured me that they were all delighted with David. Rogers' table talk, end footnote. That Hume shook hands with him and said, You have treated me much better than I deserve, and that they exchanged visits. I took the liberty to object to treating an infidel writer with smooth civility. Where there is a controversy concerning a passage in a classic author, or concerning a question in antiquities, or any other subject in which human happiness is not deeply interested, a man may treat his antagonist with politeness and even respect. But where the controversy is concerning the truth of religion, 
it is of such vast importance to him who maintains it to obtain the victory that the person of an opponent ought not to be spared if a man firmly believes that religion is an invaluable treasure footnote, boswell in his corsica uses a strange argument against infidelity belief is favourable to the human mind were it for nothing else but to furnish it entertainment an infidel i should think must frequently suffer from ennui in his hebrides august the fifteenth note he attacks adam smith for being so forgetful of human comfort as to give any countenance to that dreary infidelity which would make us poor indeed End of footnote. if a man firmly believes that religion is an invaluable treasure he will consider a writer who endeavours to deprive mankind of it as a robber he will look upon him as odious though the infidel might think himself in the right a robber who reasons as the gang do in the beggar's opera who call themselves practical philosophers footnote jemmy twitcher are we more dishonest than the rest of mankind what we win gentlemen is our own by the law of arms and the right of conquest crook-fingered jack where shall we find such another set of practical philosophers who to a man are above the fear of death the beggar's opera act two scene one end of footnote a robber who reasons as the gang do in the beggar's opera who call themselves practical philosophers and may have as much sincerity as pernicious speculative philosophers is not the less an object of just indignation an abandoned profligate may think that it is not wrong to debauch my wife but shall i therefore not detest him and if i catch him in making an attempt shall i treat him with politeness no i will kick him downstairs or run him through the body that is if i really love my wife or have a true rational notion of honour an infidel then shall not be treated handsomely by a christian merely because he endeavours to rob with ingenuity i do declare however that i am exceedingly unwilling to be provoked to anger and could i be persuaded that truth would not suffer from a cool moderation in its defenders i shall wish to preserve good humour at least in every controversy nor indeed do i see why a man should lose his temper while he does all he can to refute an opponent i think ridicule may be fairly used against an infidel for instance if he be an ugly fellow and yet absurdly vain of his person Footnote. boswell i think here aims a blow at gibbon he says post under march the nineteenth seventeen eighty one that johnson had talked with some disgust of mr gibbon's ugliness he wrote to temple on may the eighth seventeen seventy nine gibbon is an ugly affected disgusting fellow and poisons our literary club to me he had before classed him among infidel wasps and venomous insects letters of boswell the younger coleman describes gibbon as 
dressed in a suit of flowered velvet with a bag and sword random records and a footnote if he be an ugly fellow yet absurdly vain of his person we may contrast his appearance with cicero's beautiful image of virtue could she be seen footnote formam quidem ipsam maci fili et tamquam faciam honesti vides quasi oculis generator mirabiles amores ut ait plato excitaret sapientiae cicero de officiis book one five and footnote johnson coincided with me and said when a man voluntarily engages in an important controversy he is to do all he can to lessen his antagonist because authority from personal respect has much weight with most people and often more than reasoning footnote of beattie's attack on hume he said treating your adversary with respect is striking soft in a battle bustles hebrides august the fifteenth end of footnote if my antagonist writes bad language though that may not be essential to the question i will attack him for his bad language adams you would not jostle a chimney-sweeper johnson yes sir if it were necessary to jostle him down dr adams told us that in some of the colleges at oxford the fellows had excluded the students from social intercourse with them in the common room Footnote. when gibbon entered magdalen college in seventeen fifty two the ordinary commoners were already excluded as a gentleman commoner he writes i was admitted to the society of the fellows and fondly expected that some questions of literature would be the amusing and instructive topics of their discourse their conversation stagnated in a round of college business tory politics personal anecdotes and private scandal their dull and deep potations excused the brisk intemperance of youth and their constitutional toasts were not expressive of the most lively loyalty for the house of hanover gibbon's miscellaneous works in jess's edition of white's selborne it is stated that white as long as his health allowed him always attended the annual election of fellows at oriel college where the gentlemen commoners were allowed the use of the common room after dinner this liberty they seldom availed themselves of except on the occasion of mr white's visits for such was his happy manner of telling a story that the room was always filled when he was there he died in seventeen ninety three and a footnote johnson they are in the right sir there can be no real conversation no fair exertion of mind amongst them if the young men are by for a man who has a character does not choose to stake it in their presence Possible. but sir may there not be very good conversation without a contest for superiority johnson no animated conversation sir 
for it cannot be but one or other will come off superior. I do not mean that the victor must have the better of the argument, for he may take the weak side, but his superiority of parts and knowledge will necessarily appear, and he to whom he thus shows himself superior is lessened in the eyes of the young men. Footnote. So different are the colours of life as we look forward to the future or backward to the past, and so different the opinions and sentiments which this contrariety of appearance naturally produces, that the conversation of the old and young ends generally with contempt or pity on either side. One generation is always the scorn and wonder of the other and the notions of the old and young are like liquors of different gravity and texture, which never can unite. The Rambler, number 69, in a footnote. You know it was said, Malem cum scaligero errare, quam cum clavio recte sapere. Footnote. It was said of a dispute between two mathematicians, Malem cum scaligero errare, quam cum clavio recte sapere, that it was more eligible to go wrong with one than right with the other. A tendency of the same kind every mind must feel at the perusal of Dryden's prefaces and Rhymer's discourses. Johnson's works, volume 7, page 303, and a footnote. In the same manner, take Bentley's and Jason de Nor's comments upon Horace you will admire Bentley more when wrong than Jason when right. We walked with Dr. Adams into the master's garden and into the common room. Johnson, after a reverie of meditation, Aye, here I used to play at draughts with Phil Jones and Fludger. Jones loved beer and did not get very forward in the church. There is evidence of Phil Jones's love of beer, for we find scribbled at the end of the college buttery books, Oh, yes, oh, yes, come forth, Phil Jones, and answer to your charge for exceeding the battles. His excess, perhaps, was in liquor. Dr. Johnson, his friends, etc., end of footnote. Fludger turned out a scoundrel, a Whig and said he was ashamed of having been bred at Oxford. He had a living at Putney, and got under the eye of some retainers to the court at that time, and so became a violent Whig. But he had been a scoundrel all along, to be sure. Oswald. Was he a scoundrel, sir, in any other way than that of being a political scoundrel? Did he cheat at drafts? Johnson. Sir, we never played for money. End of section 61